Hello, and welcome to Revolution 22's teaching podcast. We are a church from the downtown area in Boise, Idaho. Thank you for joining us today and hearing this week's sermon. We pray that God's word will be received and will bear fruit in your life. You guys can grab a seat. It isn't lost on me that today we're talking about unity. While our gatherings or smaller groups as a church kind of dispersed about. I know we're all feeling weary, tired, and needing to grieve life as we knew it. 24 weeks ago, everything shifted, and it's, uh, it's hard. It's difficult, and I think that's one of the things that's causing us to wrestle with this idea of unity because you can't spend time apart from each other individually and really understand if everything is okay. We started this unity series last week, and we've been doing some videos and and all kinds of things throughout the week with conversations. So I'd encourage you to get caught up there and to watch it there as well. But we talked about this idea of us holding tighter to people than our ideologies. I use the example of our kids fighting over a toy and saying that we're going to remove the toy from them because we value their, we want them to value their relationship higher than the toy itself, than the ideologies itself. We talked about how we need to recognize what's influencing us, which is why we shared the 28-day the fast to kind of remove the influences of this world so that you can be influenced by God. Identify those good and bad influences, the fruit that comes out of us, whether it's bad or good, identify those things for us. We talked about how I, we are either maintaining unity or neglecting it. See, the real main issue with unity in the church isn't that we don't value it. I genuinely believe that every single one of us values unity. I'm sure that most Christians would say, I value unity, but there are very real issues in the church around truth and how we are to operate within this world. And so what happens is we say we value unity, but then we get confronted with this idea that we're supposed to be doing this or we're supposed to be giving ourselves to this, and then we don't know how to operate from there. Really what happens is we sacrifice unity on the altar of right thinking and right actions. Let me first say what unity isn't. Unity isn't just finding people you agree with and spending time with them. Because the reality is, is you don't fully agree with everyone or anyone entirely until his resurrection. And if you're like, no, I'm around a bunch of people that I fully agree with. Well, then you've achieved perfection somehow on this side of the resurrection. Praise Jesus. Or you're refusing to be open-handed in your thinking. And so you're just continuing to drive your wedges deeper into a group of people that fit your ideologies. And anyone that's in opposition to those doesn't belong with you. Or you are just avoiding hard conversations. You believe that you don't need to speak truth into something where someone says something that could be false. I'm not saying that right thinking or actions aren't important. In fact, one can make an argument that both of those are very important in Scripture. When I say we sacrifice unity on the altar of right thinking or right actions, I say that we essentially we assume that if we disagree in our thinking or in our actions of that we're supposed to be doing, then we believe that we have justifiable reasons to neglect unity. If there's some form of disagreement there, then we just can't be unified. And so for a second here, I want to just zoom out. I want to kind of take a 30,000-foot view. Remind us who we are if we bear the name of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. 1 Peter 2.9 says this, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. This is who we are if we are in Christ. 
We are these things. We are his workmanship. We are created to do good works. We are a holy, pre- a holy nation, a royal priesthood. This is all true of who we are in Christ. So if you bear the name of Christ, if you've submitted your life to Jesus as his lordship in place, then you are these things. Philippians 3.20 21 says this, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. See, when we recognize that we are new creation, that we are of his royal priesthood, when we recognize that this is who we are, then we see that our citizenship is in heaven, and that means something to those of us that are followers of Christ. It means that we are not of this world means that we operate not the way the world operates. We operate the way the kingdom of God commands of us to operate while being in this world. Second Corinthians says we can't by any means not influence or be around the world. We'd have to leave it. Jesus even prays that he wouldn't take us from the world, but instead that, we would be, that, he, that we'd be strong in the world. So we have to remember first and foremost that when we bear the name of Christ, we are a part of a kingdom that is not here to its full fruition yet. The here but not yet moment that we're longing for something, that the pains that we're experiencing, the frustrations and the disunity that we're wrestling with isn't a part of God's kingdom. It's a fact that we're still living here in this broken world of fighting the flesh in us that has the tension to want to bear bad fruit in opposition to the spirit in us that is striving to give us to walk in the fruit of the spirit. This is who we are. We have to remember this. This is so important. In fact, John Calvin says it this way. He says, it is the task of the church to make the invisible kingdom visible. We do that by living in such a way that we bear witness to the reality of of the kingship of Christ in our jobs, our families, our schools, or even our checkbooks. Because God in Christ is king over every one of these spheres of life. The only way the kingdom of God is going to be manifest in in this world before Christ comes is if we manifest it by the way we live as citizens of heaven and subjects of the king. Jesus says in, in Matthew 28, he says, all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. Now go and make disciples. He is our king. If all authority has been given to him, then when we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, then we're saved. Like Romans 10, 9 says, what that means is we have surrendered to his lordship, to his authority to do his will, to do his work. Romans 6, 18 says it this way, having been set free from sin, We've become slaves of righteousness. This is important for us to remember. If we're going to talk about unity, we have to remember what our operating standards are supposed to look like. We are slaves to righteousness. We have surrendered our lives to his kingship, to his lordship. We are part of a kingdom that is not of this world. We are part of a kingdom that is greater than any system in this world. We are part of a kingdom that will not pass away. So then what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to die to ourselves says it this way in Galatians 2.20. It says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, the life I live today, I live by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Jesus says in Luke 14.27, whoever does not, who does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We know what the cross means. They knew it even better. It meant we have to die to ourselves. This whole being a slave to righteousness, this idea of dying to ourselves for the sake of God's work, for his kingdom, is all through the scripture. It's it's the, the beginning point from which we operate and walk and live. It goes down further in, in Luke 14, where Jesus is talking. He says, Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has, 
all that he has includes our stuff, includes our ideologies, includes our liberties. You must renounce all things that are part of this world. He goes on and says, cannot be my disciple, Luke 14, 33. So if Jesus asked us to move, our answer should always be yes. If Jesus asked us to do something, our answer should always be in submission to him, yes, I will. We are surrendered to him. So if this is true of all of us in Christ, and unity is something that Jesus truly wants, we saw that in John 17 in his prayer last week. It's something that he commands. We see that in John 13. It's something that he gives us. We see that in Romans 12, and it's something that we're commanded to walk in, like it says in Ephesians 4. Then why? Why is there so much lack of unity in the church? Why do we not feel unified? Again, the unity is ours in the Spirit. It's our job to preserve the unity. So then why are we not preserving it? Where has it all gone wrong? How do we move forward in unity? I think it's the one way that I've heard many questions all week long. What do we do about disagreements? I genuinely disagree with someone around this thing, and I believe that this thing is valuable to God. And we disagree. We, we sit on different ideologies. And it's not always just political. It's not always just because of this world. It's, I really feel like the Spirit has shown me this. What do we do when we disagree? Or the question that I've heard a lot of people ask is, when can we go separate ways? And I believe many people are asking that question genuinely. Let me hear me on this, please. I believe many people are asking that question genuinely. But it feels like a lot of us might be asking it a lot like, well, how many times should I forgive my brother? Or who is my neighbor? Or what must I do to inherit the kingdom of God? All very good questions, but they're questions being asked in a way of where I want the answer to fit a certain agenda that I may have. Really, at the root of it, if we really peel back everything, and again, many of you are asking this in, in genuine desire to try and understand and to be biblical. I'm not saying that we're doing it that way, but if we peel it back, at the heart of it, what we're saying is, do I have to let go? Do I have to be open-handed with the things that I'm so passionate about, so open-handed that I'm going to wait for my brother or sister to walk with me through this? You're asking, do I really have to do this with my brothers or sisters, or can't I go somewhere else with them, or can't we just pick a different church or find these different areas that we can just kind of do it peacefully where we don't experience conflict? Again, we sacrifice unity on the altar of right thinking and right actions. Aside from the fact that, that all of our disagreements should fall under the umbrella of Jesus as our king, that we are his slaves and that he is completing us and that the process is, is and will be painful and very thorough, we shouldn't be quick to label people as divisive if they're passionate. Hear me on this. Please hear me on this. Just because I may be passionate about something that one of our world systems or our political system has aligned itself to does not mean that I'm operating politically and being divisive. We shouldn't be assuming that just because someone's passionate about something that they're being divisive. Now, how they operate, how they walk in that is where divisiveness comes. But just because we disagree, we can't assume that that's divisive. Even if our ideologies might align to a world system, it is entirely possible to be passionate about a cause or ideology that our politics value that is also expected of us in Scripture as well. But I'm not sure we can have unity this side of resurrection without conflict. I really don't think we can. And that's because of flesh. That's because we're in this world. It's because we're going to have preferences. We're going to find out things. We're going to know things. We can only know things today as if it's dimly lit through a mirror. That's what the Scriptures tell us in Corinthians. But let's just, let's just see this thing through. Let's see if we have to agree to be unified, because that's what everyone thinks. I think my wife is really awesome. I think, he's, I think she's amazing. Let's say John and I start having a conversation about whose wife is more awesome. 
And we do it really great. We're like, okay, I love you, and we're going we're gonna to have this conversation, and we're not fighting that he's like, hey, here's what Holly does, and she does this really well. I'm like, oh, that's a, that's a point for Holly, you know, and then, well, here's what Jen does, and here's what she does really well. No, that's a point for Jen. And let's say we walk through all this conversation all the way. At the end of that conversation, if I go, you know what, John, after I look at the, the stats and, the, and the, the things there, I think you're right. Holly's a better wife. You win. She's, she's a better wife. Jen, you need to be a better wife. That is not a win in my marriage. I can acknowledge things like, yeah, hey, John, Holly does things better than Jen. Jen does things better than Holly. But at the end of the day, I really hope that I prefer my wife over yours, and he prefers his wife over mine. So there's going to be disagreements. Let's look at Scripture. We see disagreements. We see Paul and Barnabas arguing. We see Paul and Peter confronting one another. But even more than that, just think for a second. This is obviously my own conjecture, but just think for a second in the 12 disciples. Two of the disciples that Jesus called, one is Matthew, a tax collector, an individual, a Jewish individual that sold himself to the Roman influence and then used that influence to completely destroy and overtax his very own people. So he sold himself to another government, which would have been a really big thing. Most Jews, all Jews would have hated him for this. And then he got Simon the Zealot as another disciple. And the Zealots were people that were, were adamant about having only God's rule, no other foreign rule over them. So think about how Simon felt about Roman rule over the Jews in that day. And Matthew, who had submitted himself to Roman rule and was exploiting his people by Roman rule. I guarantee, I guarantee, at least for the first week at minimum, there were some decent arguments around the fire over bacon and eggs in the breakfast. I guarantee there were some, some frustrations there. There were some fights in this way. What brought them together? Jesus. Jesus is the one that brought them together. Common thing we all have is Jesus. We can't just be united, unified with people that we agree with. There's going to be conflict. So we can't then, if we recognize that there's going to be conflict, we can't say if there is conflict, therefore we must disunify. Therefore, we must change sides of the field and play against someone else. Therefore, we must compete with one another. Therefore, we must say our ideology louder than the other person. Now, there are a billion ways our disagreements are going to go wrong. They're going to cause us to neglect unity. And I'm only going to cover a few of them today for your sake and our time. There are a number of ways that we experience neglecting unity because of disagreements. And so what I want to do is I want to, just, I want to just speak of a few. This is not an exhaustive list, but just of a few that I think is where it's going the most wrong. And my hope and my prayer would be that you would, at the end of this, see the value of being unified, not forsaking the value of giving yourself to doing the things that God's commanding of you in this world, but seeing the value of being unified and doing this with your brothers and sisters. The first way that unity goes wrong in disagreements is when it's our knowledge, not his wisdom. Let me say it this way. So knowledge is simply knowing something. Applying that knowledge and living it takes wisdom. Knowledge in itself in Scripture just puffs up. To know something is just puffed up. Unless knowledge turns to wisdom, it goes nowhere. So what does wisdom look like? Who gives us wisdom? First, I think we have to recognize that wisdom comes from God. Proverbs 2, 6 says this, The Lord gives wisdom. So it's the Lord who gives wisdom. From his mouth comes knowledge and understanding. So our wisdom, our understanding comes from God. So even right now, if you're like, man, I, I believe that God has shown me this thing. I understand this thing. Well, then if it's knowledge, you'll operate however you want. If it's wisdom, you'll operate a totally different way. Let me say it this way. There's three ways predominantly we see in Scripture that, that wisdom comes. James 1 through 5 says, if you lack wisdom, ask the Lord. So we see in prayer that we can do it. Like we can, we can get wisdom from asking of God. 
2 Timothy 3.15 says, The sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. So the scriptures are another way that we experience wisdom. And the third is the Holy Spirit. Whether he is speaking to you through the scriptures in your own study or individually, or he's speaking to you through another brother or sister in the community of God. This is how we get wisdom. And the reason why this is important for us to understand is because a lot of us right now are dividing. We're divisive. We're experiencing the fruit of dissension and enmity and strife like we talked about last week because of knowledge, wisdom. Look at what James 3 says. James 3, 13 through 18 says, Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Okay, so to take what knowledge you have been given and apply it properly is to be wise. That's what we're seeing here. Wisdom isn't just a right understanding. Wisdom isn't just, I know, I read the facts, I see the stats, I've, I've looked at the articles, I've read these things. Wisdom is these things are happening and now I'm operating in light of that. I'm operating out of it. How am I operating? In meekness, in the wor- his works, in the meekness of wisdom. But... If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts and do, and do not boast and be false to the truth, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Is the knowledge that you have bringing about disorder within the community of God? Then this is, would make it worldly wisdom, unspiritual or demonic. But the wisdom from above is first peace, or is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. God's wisdom is first pure. This word is often translated holy. That means that the wisdom from above is holy. That the knowledge that we have moved into wisdom is holiness. Purity is the crown jewel of godly wisdom. It reflects the person and the purposes of God. How do we know if it's godly wisdom? He gives us the traits right here. It's first peaceable. To be peaceful is to be free from anxiety or inner turmoil. How are we doing on that, church? To be peaceable is to be free from anxiety and inner turmoil. Peaceable. It's the opposite of disorder that we saw in verse 16. If you know God and are trusting him and are pursuing his ways, why would there be fear, turmoil, and anxiety in the way we're moving? Because your knowledge has been influenced by worldly wisdom, not godly wisdom. Second way we know if it's God's wisdom is it's gentle. Titus 3.2 describes gentle as avoiding quarreling. How are we doing on that, church? In these ideologies, in the knowledge and the understanding that we have and the wisdom, when we start disagreeing, how are we doing on being gentle? Is gentleness something that would say, man, that conversation, they were just so gentle when they were blasting me on social media. They were so gentle when they yelled at me in fits of anger and rage. Wisdom from above, right knowledge, operating and walking out is, is gentle. It's not divisive. True wisdom, therefore, doesn't operate according to aggressions of this world. Wisdom from above doesn't accomplish its end by picking fights and getting in people's faces. Wisdom from above is open to reason. It means we're willing to listen, slow to speak, to be reasonable. How reasonable do you feel like you are in your thinking right now? Even if the Lord gave you this understanding, even if the wisdom you have that you believe is something that is so true that the whole church needs to do it, how open to reason are you in that? If there's no openness, if you're not reasonable, if you're not marked by that, then this is not godly wisdom. Or you have taken knowledge from God and are operating in worldly wisdom. When there's a disagreement, godly wisdom does not go on the attack. A wise person doesn't jump to conclusions, assume the worst, or go for the throat in a disagreement. Instead, they are the opposite. They are what? Full 
of mercy. This is the next thing James says. If you want to understand what godly wisdom looks like, it's going to be full of mercy. This is not giving people what they deserve, an overflowing with compassion, not easily offended, but easily finds the good and gives grace, even when the world says go on the attack. Are you full of mercy? Is the thinking, the ideology that you have, the way that you're, you're taking the knowledge you have and walking it out in, in wisdom, are you full of mercy? When someone lashes out at you, are, are you justified in lashing back? When someone says something that hurts you, are you justified in distancing yourself? Are you full of mercy? Since it's good fruits, this is just acting on the knowledge, doing the things that God has set out for us to do. I would say this is like walking by the Spirit of God. Next thing it says, it's impartial. Wisdom is impartial. It means we don't draw lines concerning who we will love and in what capacity. We're impartial. No distinctions. It's either what God wants or it's not. Wisdom is impartial. See, this is what's interesting is we take our knowledge and we use it as, because I have this knowledge, I can then love only these people that agree with me. Your wisdom is impartial, whether people agree or not. And the last one it says is sincere or without hypocrisy. Everything is done in sincerity. One of the things that I've seen as, as people are struggling, and again, I think a lot of people are hurting right now, is they get really, really fine focused in on one set of Scripture, one aspect of Scripture, while ignoring other aspects of Scripture. You know who else did that? The Pharisees. If we choose to ignore an aspect of Scripture, scripture so that we can make a point in one, that's very pharisaical, sincere. Wisdom from above is sincere without hypocrisy. When we lose sight of where our understanding comes from and what wisdom really looks like, we then operate in neglecting unity. That's the first way. That's the one of the ways it goes bad. The second way that unity goes wrong in disagreements is when we make things of this world of greater importance than things of his kingdom. This is important for us to understand that this is incredibly possible heard a pastor talking about the Apostle Peter at the Garden of Gethsemane right after Jesus is arrested. He said, it's very possible for us to be incredibly 100% passionate about Jesus, but completely wrong in our politics. And he says, you can see that in Peter because Peter cut off the ear of a man Jesus was going to the cross for. We can be very passionate about things of Jesus and completely get wrong the application of it. Maybe that's not a good enough example. Let's look at the, the disciples on the road to Emmaus. What's the word they say to Jesus when he's like, why are you guys so sad? They said, we had hoped he would redeem Israel. Now, Jesus said, over and over and over again while walking with his disciples that that's not what I'm doing. I'm doing something greater. My kingdom is not of this world. He even said to religious leaders, if my kingdom were of this world, they'd be fighting, but it's not. He said over and over again. So it's possible to miss it. It's possible for us to miss what God is doing while walking with him. The disciples did it. Why would we assume that we're immune to it? So that begs the question, are you potentially making a thing of the world of greater importance than the thing of God's kingdom. Now, what I'm saying is just, again, like I said earlier, just because you have an ideology that you are fighting with or working for or trying to, to see move forward, or you're working in any of these things, just because a world system, a political system may align itself to that does not mean it's wrong. But we have to recognize it is very possible for us to be very passionate, very excited about things of God and get it completely wrong. If the disciples were capable of doing it and walking with them three years, why would we ever assume that we are immune to that possibility or the propensity of that happening in us? It's, this is a sovereignty of God issue. Are you willing to surrender everything you want to the Spirit so he can purge from you anything that isn't of God in it? Do you feel a desire to see something happen in this world that, that God's Scripture would say is good? Are you willing to purge anything of this world that's influencing it in an unhealthy way and continue to do it with God? Do you believe he cares about the issues more than you do? We, we, 
we see that God is, is ultimately the one that cares about all this way more than I do, than you do. The problem with this one, when we allow the things of this world to get in the way, we can unintentionally be influenced by things that we're not aware we're being influenced by. This is why I challenged you this last week to remove any of the worldly influences that might be taking away some things that God is asking of you or doing in you. Let me give you an example of this. The 1914 World War I Christmas Eve truce. I've shared this before. It's a truce that happened between the Germans and the Allied troops. Pope Benedict at that time had recommended that, hey, let's take a, let's take a day off from, from fighting. Let's take a day off. And, and some people were okay with about two-thirds of the troops. About 100,000 people did some version of the Christmas Eve's truce. Most people said it began on the enemy lines on Christmas Eve of singing Christmas carols. That's how it began. And then what ended up happening is the next morning in some places, German soldiers emerged from their trenches calling out Merry Christmas in English. Allied soldiers came out warily to greet them. And others, Germans held up signs that said, you no shoot, we no shoot. And what ended up happening is over the course of that day, troops exchanged cigarettes and food and buttons and, and, and had conversations. One, one German soldier who was a barber beforehand gave an Allied soldier a haircut that day. They were able to bury their dead that had been sitting in no man's land for months. One million people died in this war. One million people died in this war. And in an instant, they were willing to just drop down a gun that they, the day of or the day before, were shooting at the other person trying to kill. This is what I think we unintentionally do at times. Now, look, there were people in this that used this as a way to entice them out. Yeah, come on out. And there was a couple instances that they know where one side influenced them out and then shot them, said we were going to do peace, but they didn't. But two-thirds of the people did this. Some lasted all the way till New Year's Day. Some went back to war that day, the day of Christmas. What this shows me is that we can unintentionally get ourselves wrapped up in someone else's fight and start taking up to arms and start shooting people because we're being influenced by someone else. To say that those soldiers that were willing to exchange, and, and some of them played soccer. They went out and played kickabouts and had all sorts of stuff like that with makeshift soccer balls. To do that doesn't mean that they really fully embody what the war was about at that time. They were able to see the humanity in that. And I think that's the problem with us as Christians, as those that are of God's kingdom. At times, we take up arms in the world systems and start fighting someone else's fight because we're being influenced beyond what God would ask of us. This is why it's important for us to never make things of the world of greater importance than things of his kingdom. Again, it's possible that the things of God line up with your politics and other world systems, but we are to pay attention to how we're being influenced in those things. The third way that unity goes wrong in disagreements is when we get it right. Let me say that again. The third way that unity goes wrong in disagreements is when we get it right. See, part of what I'm seeing of us in a church right now is that we just want to be right. We, we act right. We think right. We talk right. We tell everyone else that we're right. We, we are right because of what we've studied, because of what we've looked at. We're right. The problem with that is, is that it goes in against 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3, where it says, If I speak in the tongues of men of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or clanging cymbal. Now listen to this. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries, mysteries pertaining to God, and have all knowledge, and I have all the faith as to remove mountains. Now, I don't know any of you that would stand up and say, I have all knowledge, all, I know all, understand all mysteries, I have all faith. But he's saying, if I have all of those things, but I have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. We are commanded to be a living sacrifice, but if I do so void of love, then I am nothing. You know what the scriptures tells us? That there's actually a possibility for this to happen. That I can be right and at the same time get love completely wrong. 
that I can be right and walk in complete disunity, in complete works of the flesh, we need to acknowledge that we can go about this all wrong. He's speaking to the believers in Corinth church in this text, a church that was riddled with divisiveness and dissension and fights. So it's possible for us to do all these things without love. It's possible for us to do it wrong. So what do we do? I think we fight away the darkness in this world, but we do so with unity. What else do we do? I think we work towards helping the oppressed, but we maintain unity. I think we strive to see legislature changed, but we maintain unity. None of the things that we do should ever take precedence over us being and seeking unity that is ours in the Spirit, and we are commanded by God to preserve. So let's do it. Let's do the work that God's calling us to do it, but stop doing it as a lone soldier thinking that you can do it like Rambo by yourself. We are a covenant people with a covenant God, and we are a people forever in a kingdom that will not pass away. So stop using other kingdoms as an example or a reason to divide over people that you cannot divide because Jesus is one. So how do we do it? Well, let's go back to Ephesians 4 like we read last week. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling to which you have been called. How are we to walk this walk? How are we to do this? With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager, vigilant, joyful, excited, overwhelmed to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. When he talks about lowliness in, in the Greeks' day, in this day, that was, a, that was a derogatory term. That was a term that was used for people that were less than. In the, in the New Testament, where the Scriptures use it, it's a group of people that have put themselves in willful subjection to Christ, recognizing that we are lower than Him with meekness, with gentleness. This is power under control. Many of you right now, you have power in your understanding. To move forward with meekness is to be gentle, is to take that power and to keep it under control, to move forward in patience. How are we doing on that, church? How are you doing on your long-suffering? A long-suffering that makes allowance for, for others' shortcomings and endures a wrong rather than flying into a rage or desiring vengeance. How are we doing on our long-suffering with one another, bearing with one another in love? This is that we are to endure the injuries and sins of others. This is the true, authentic love that Jesus gives to us, is the expectation of us. Set your mind on the things above, not the things of this world, like Colossians 3.2 says. Ephesians 2.19 says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. We are fellow citizens together. Whether you like it or not, you are fellow citizens. Whether you like your, your friend or the person sitting next to you or not, even if they're that crazy uncle, you're fellow citizens with each other in the kingdom of God. He goes on and says, And we are, we are members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is true of us today and in the resurrection. Let's live like it today. Let's give ourselves to all humility and gentleness and meekness, forbearing with one another in love, patient with each other, walking with each other. Let's just be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. This world is passing away. If we remember just how I started this, that we are part of a kingdom that will not pass away, then we, that has to help us see that the things that we can do and are to do in this world, that ultimately God is commanding us to operate in this world, but this world will pass away. The systems that are part of this world will pass away. All authority has been given to Jesus. We are his sons. We are co-heirs with Christ. It isn't wrong to want to work on things 
if they're passing away. But we need to remember who we're serving. We need to remember what, what our primary focus should be, is to live as citizens of heaven. We're going to take communion today. And the reason why we're going to take communion is because we all can stand on Jesus. If you're watching and listening to this at home and you're by yourself, my, my challenge and encouragement for you and as a way to preserve unity would, to find, would be to find another believer to take communion with either today. And if you're like, I don't know where, I'm new to this town, then great. Call down to the office, come take communion with us next, this next week. Preserve unity, do it together. I want to challenge you guys to lay down at the communion anything that is tempting you to be divisive right now. Lay it down. Lay down the things, the ideologies that are causing divisiveness in your church. Now listen to me, hear me on this, because many of you are like, but I want to do these works. That's great. Lay them down and realize you pick them up covered by the blood of Jesus with your brothers and sisters. We get to walk in them, not because we're going to do it alone, but because we have other people to do it with us. doesn't mean you, can stop, you have to stop caring about these things. It's just saying that you are stating that Jesus is more important to me than anything else. Will you do that? Will you lay those things down? Unity cannot happen without conflict this side of resurrection, and there is a cost to it. Just like salvation, it's free, but it costs greatly. There will be disunity wherever there is pride. For those of you that have a brother or sister that you are in quarreling with, you are divided from, you are fighting with, my challenge to you is to seek reconciliation. Some of you are like, I don't even know how to do that. I don't even know if we'll ever agree. We see so far in our ideologies. Then fine. See, I refuse to let the ideologies be a reason for us to divide. And go to them and say, I love you. And I don't know how to deal with these disagreements, but I love you. And I'm holding on to you tighter than these ideologies. So can we do this together with patience, with forbearing love, with, with gentleness, with meekness, with humility? The band's going to come up and we're going to sing some songs here and worship some more. See, we are all sinners saved by Jesus. Let's not be Pharisees standing before Jesus proclaiming all, how good all the things we did were and pointing out how glad we aren't like the sinner. But instead, let us stand before Jesus arm in arm with all the other sinners saved by grace. We're going to take communion, but we're going to do it differently today. We're, you guys have been, here have been passed out in your gospel communities too. Um, they're going to play some music here in a second and just start. We're going to ask that you guys would just take communion together in your communities that you came with, with other believers. If you're here alone, you can come over with me if you want to, and we can do it together as well. But take communion together as, as the body, as a display. And if you're here today and you're like, I can't take communion yet because I need to be reconciled, pick up your phone and make that call right now. Don't wait. If you're feeling dissension between you and the relationships you have, then repent of that. Repent of your part of that. Don't expect the other person to do it, but walk with them in love. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for, for your mercy, for your grace. God, you, um, you and you alone are the only one capable of preserving unity. Forgive us for the ways we've forgotten about you. God, forgive us for the ways that we've chosen to be right and use that as an excuse to divide. God, if there's anything in us that is not of you, God, I pray that you just wreak havoc on our hearts, that you would cut away. That you are fully aware and not confused or perplexed by what we as a church are going through right now. So would we submit to what you're doing? Would we surrender our ideologies to you? And God, would you, if they are of you, help us pick them up? with locked arms with other believers. Help us to see how to, to bring your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we, we ask that as we come to the table of communion, as we think about the only thing that could truly make us one is the blood of Jesus, the complete leveler of all of us. Every single one of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but you 
being rich in your mercy and your grace, have lavished your grace on us so that we may stand in wholeness, righteous before you, not alone, but with your body. And so, God, as we take communion today, I pray that we do so in, a, in, a, in an honorable way. We do so in a way that is true to who you are, which is one. And, Father, I pray, I pray that we would be one as you and the Father are one, or as you and Jesus are one. God, I pray that you would help us to preserve unity in the bond of peace. God, help us to forgive as you've forgiven. Help us to love as you have loved. And help us to live true to who we already are in your kingdom as one as your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. To find out more about our church, please visit revolution22.org. We encourage you to not neglect meeting together as believers. And may you continue to love God and love others.